I look forward to uh, to showing people that uh, that we're a team to be reckoned with, and uh, let's not be shy about wanting to be to be the best. And I, I fully expect us to be uh, to be competitive and to be a, to be a winning team. And uh, our goal is to win a championship, and it starts with the division. So come get us. Yeah, I feel that we've uh, significantly upgraded our team. We've uh, worked tirelessly. I know Brody probably hasn't slept very much since he got this job to build a dynamic, diverse um, squad that can go out there and compete with anybody on any given night, even if a pitcher's having a really good night. So I am really excited going into spring training. We had some meetings last week with the coaching staff in Port St. Lucie and just looking up on the board at our depth, the versatility of our players got me really excited. So we're in a really good spot going into spring training. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, if there's more to be done, that, that we'll, we will try and do it. Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones. The Mets are the world champion. Here's the one, two, three. Check him out. Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Saturday, January the 26th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, whatever podcasting service you desire. I hope everybody's doing well. It's been a couple of weeks, and I uh, wanted to come to you a week before the Super Bowl. I know next week. Uh, we, we will not have a podcast, and, uh, you know, obviously we always kind of take Super Bowl Sunday off or that weekend so you guys could enjoy the Super Bowl. I don't know how much baseball talk there will be, although you still have major free agents out there. A jam-packed show. Uh, in a little bit, we'll uh, do a, a, a short piece. A uh, friend of mine, I've, I've done stuff with him in the past, Bob Sykes. Bob used to work for the Mets back in the 80s. He was part of the training staff. Uh, used to write a blog called it called, and you may have remember it, Getting Paid to Watch. And Mel Stottlemyre passed away about two weeks ago, or maybe a little over a week ago. And I figured it would be cool to just get his take, having worked with Mel, seen Mel work with those young pitchers in the 80s up close, to do a little short piece about Mel Stottlemyre and uh, his impact on a young Mets pitching staff, kind of a tribute to Mel, who unfortunately uh, died probably too young. Uh, I think he was like 77. 
uh, from cancer. So sad news, uh, but I figured we'd do a little tribute to Mel Stottlemyre. I'll get into the Hall of Fame later. I know there's been some talk, so I'm going to throw a little bit of a different twist on that. And, uh, and away we go. So jam-packed show uh, as we head into February, our last January show. We head into February and uh, spring training right around the corner, despite the fact we had sub-zero temperatures this week. And I apologize. I wanted to come to you guys a little bit earlier, actually a few days earlier. And I'm glad I didn't because the Justin Wilson news showed up, and then they had the whole conference or luncheon that the writers had with Jeff Wilpon and Brody Van Wagenen, and that brought up some quotes and some dialogue about the Mets spending. So I'm actually glad it was fortuitous that 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 we did not have a chance, even though I'd love to split these shows up, you know, do a Hall of Fame separate, and sometimes I don't, you know, I say, how can I get everything in, in an hour? And, and it's tough sometimes. I try to keep this stuff to an hour, but and I think an hour is a threshold. Some say it's too long, but I, I think an hour is a good amount of time to jam the content in. But I've been sick for about two weeks. I've had on and off laryngitis. Uh, you may have noticed at the last show on the 14th about two weeks ago, and it's been really tough. I struggled a lot during that show. We had John Edwards on uh, talking a little bit about the offseason and analytics and what have you, and I struggled a lot. And uh, there was no way I'd be able to do at certain points over the last two weeks uh, a show where I felt like I would sound appropriate and put the time and the effort in that was needed to respect the fact that you're dedicating almost 60 minutes of your life listening to this. So I'm pretty much better, um, maybe not perfect, but better. And uh, hopefully the, the laryngitis is over and it's that, that one you know illness that usually you get in the winter when uh, temperatures go from 60 to 20 to zero, back up to 40, and all the craziness that is the Northeast uh, weather during this time of the year. So anyway, past that. Uh, where will we start? You heard the comments on the intro, right before the intro, you heard Brody Van Wagenen. That's an old comment where during the press conference with Jed Lowry, he said, come and get us, and that created all hysteria at some parts. And then you heard Mickey Calloway as, as well on MLB Network Radio talking about the depth and how excited he is to get to spring training. And what makes me laugh, and I'll start there, what makes me laugh about the reaction to Brody Van Wagenen's comments is that it's being portrayed in print by the media as him bragging and saying we're the best. And when you listen to the audio, it's it's not even close to that. It's not even close to what you would think. Okay, let's let's think of famous quotes that maybe were bullish about a team. You know, Davey Johnson, we're the team to beat. In the 86 season. That's always a famous quote. You know, Jimmy Rollins after the 06 season into 07. We're the team to beat in 2007. Which I found laughable because I felt the Phillies were flawed. And uh, you know I was wrong. Even though it took nearly 162 games to be wrong. But I was wrong. And, and they were uh, a team on the rise. And he knew it. And he put his chips to the center of the table. And they proved themselves. And I don't see that quote that Brody's been, I guess, beat up about because, well, you know, the Mets are saying they're the best. You know, the only reason they could be the best and is if they go and get a Machado or Harper, and we'll get to that in a minute because that's just so ridiculous, that whole situation. But he just basically has said what, and, and we talk about culture and we talk about setting the tone. It was something that always bothered me under Sandy Alderson and Terry Collins where I felt it was, well, well we're going to go out, we're going to play every day, and we're going to grind it out. And those are all great things. Those are all process things that are part of, winning teams, but I never felt, and especially the year after the World Series, where they had all that, built up all that equity, where they could be pushed to say, okay, we 
this is the goal. We are not going to settle for anything less, and we're going to push ourselves to that goal. And it, it never happened. And it drove me crazy because that's the time where you really had the equity, where you could really take all that momentum and leverage it and, and set the tone and the theme and really have a culture where, hey, you know, this is, this is, it's, it's, it, this is a championship team. This is what our goal is. And I'm sure they had it, but you really want to put those chips at the center of the table. You want to think it. You want to eat it. You want to talk it every day while you're putting your, your spikes on and you go out there. And I think that that's what Brody Van Wagen is saying. is like, we're not here just to compete and win and that old meaningful games in September. Our goal is to go out there to get better, to win a division, and to win a championship. And every move we make, whether you like it or not, whether it's big or small, is going towards that. And I think he wants that to seep into the conversation of the entire organization. I mean, Tim Britton had uh, uh, talked about and did an article over at The Athletic about some of the new people he's brought in and about some of the things they're looking at and how overall Brody Van Wagen is trying from top to bottom to change the mindset or bring different people into this organization that have uh, a winning attitude and bring something to the table and a positive, infectious uh culture of winning. This is a guy that that went to the top of a top agency, a department. He ran a department. You don't do that by not setting goals and pushing yourself and pushing yourself out of the comfort zone and maybe setting goals that when you look at things on paper and you look at your situation in the current time, facts and cold facts are, well, that might be a little bit more than you can do. If you, if you don't push yourself if you don't push yourself towards that goal every day, you're not going to be the best at what you do. You're not going to win where you well, – you're not going to win. You're not going to want to go where you want to go. You know, he's not going to go and talk to me. Well, you know, I was looking on paper and, you know, this is where we're – you know, we don't have this, we don't have that, and here's where we are. We're Our goal right now, and I think he said, well, we're about an 87-88 win team. You know, if you look at it on paper, our goal is to, you know, make sure we hit – the Pythagorean uh, record of this uh, organization. It's like a talk like that. Look, we know what the deficits are on this team. We know what they are good at. We know where there are concerns. We understand, and, and I know that there's been talk about the payroll, that the, the ownership group may not have appetite for long-term bloated contracts, no matter who the player is. And we know that that could bite them at some point. That doesn't mean they can't win. So to make a big deal about that, and to be upset about that and say, well, you can't say that until, you know, you you clearly are the best team. Well, the media decides that you're the best team. Well, the media likes to tell people what to do or where they're allowed to say. Because they go and they if – li- if they listen to the media, right now Brandon Jury would be on the Mets and Noah Syndergaard would be on the Yankees. That w- and that would have been a good deal if you listen to the media. If you listen to what the media tells you what you should do. Jacob deGrom would be with the Yankees and some p- collection of single-A prospects – with tools would be with the with the Mets. Well, that's what you do when you listen to the media. You let the media tell you what you can and can't say and how you can say it and where you're allowed to say it. So we'll start with that. I like it. I like the energy. I think Brody, although he's using some salesmanship and some of the words are not quite as loyally as, as Sandy Alderson, there's a certain amount of uh, reading between the lines on certain things. Uh, so he's well-versed in that. Okay, getting to the payroll situation. There's been a lot of information out there. I know you have websites like Roster Resource and Cots Contrast, and I know, and, and I know our buddy Howard McDell did some uh, work over at Forbes, and he always does great work. 
I totally understand where fans, and I heard of fans of the Dodgers on MLB Network Radio complaining about payroll. Everyone complains about payroll because everyone says, I want, I want, I spend, I spend to go to the game. If I want Bryce Harper, if I want Manny Machado, my team can't give it to me, then what the hell am I spending all this money to go to a ball game? Well, then don't go because you have a right to say, if you're not happy with the way the roster has been built, well, you're not happy with the direction of the club, you have a right not to spend that money to go to a ball game. And I, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't because parking and tickets and stuff, the experience at home with very affordable by this by today's standards, high-definition TVs could allow you to enjoy your ball club. Yeah, I know you look at the cable bill, and that ties into all that. So I get it. So I'm not c- criticizing you for complaining about payroll. But Ken Rosenthal tweeted this out, and, and, and you go to Roster Resource. The, the issue with payroll, it's not just about what the Mets owe and what insurance is paying. The issue with payroll when it comes to any of these teams is they do not want to be above the luxury tax threshold. And insurance and things like that still can, do not do not lower your liability against luxury tax. And I believe this Ken tweeted this out, and he got it from Roster Resource. And who knows what – these are all just cobbled together. No one knows the true facts because these are, are not revealed. But they're probably pretty accurate. The Mets are about 183 to 184 million dollars towards the luxury tax, and that's 22 million dollars below. And I don't know how much of that 22 million towards that will they be able to go. Now, in real dollars, the Mets are not at 184 million dollar payroll. That's their uh, average annual value of their current contracts versus the luxury tax, which is being pretty much used as a soft cap. And that's going to be a whole big thing with the collective bargaining agreement with the Players Association in a couple of years. No doubt about it. They don't want to go and pay extra tax on players uh, that really, at the end of the day, may or may not provide you that much more in current time towards winning. And there's a, a certainty about the impact of those contracts down the road and how it's going to allow you to sign your current top stars or how it will affect payroll four or five years down the road. I think teams are... Mets have always, in recent years, since they've gotten burned and since Madoff, been like this. Why do I want to get into seven, eight, nine, ten-year contracts? The game changes a lot. My team changes a lot. Revenues could change. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world financially. I think the cable uh, bust is just around the corner. This regional networks, all this money that's been coming in, I can't see it sustainable with people looking at their cable bill and saying, what the hell am I paying for? I got a lot of questions about that, and I'm not an expert about that. But the point here is this, to criticize the Mets about spending. Uh, I honestly have to tell you there's a lot of layers to this, and it's not just about what they can afford in their budget. It's also about staying underneath that luxury tax, and they are very close to it, much closer than they've been in a long time. And some of that has to do with the fact that, you know, maybe they don't have such great contracts on there, and I, and I don't quite know how much of right, and, and I don't think anybody really knows the real number because we don't are privy to that, but it's not the money that they're laying out. That is the luxury tax number. What makes me laugh about the whole, and Ken Rosenthal had it about Machado and Harper and the Mets getting criticized, is that the Mets are doing nothing different when it comes to Machado and Harper than the rest of the industry, including the guys across town, including the team that was in the World Series representing the National League, the Dodgers, including the Red Sox, including the Cubs. And the only reason those teams are not getting criticized is because they've won recently. Mets have won recently, too, in 2015. They won a pennant. That's not that long ago. You guys act like it's 2000 that they won the pennant. It's only been about, it's going to be going on four years, and that's a long time in, I guess, sports world in the modern age. But it was three, four years ago, and they were in the playoffs in 2016, which was a couple of years ago. 
It's not like they've been now. They've been bad for two years, and we get it. And, and I know that their off-seasons under Sandy Alderson have been less than exciting. And I think this one has been much more productive, much more creative. And they splurged, and a risky splurge, on Cano and Diaz, and they brought Familia back, and they went out and get Lowry. Now they got Justin Wilson, who I think as a reliever is a nice move. Not so much a situational lefty, but I like having lefty options, especially the National League East. And, you know, $10 million for a guy that walks quite a few batters makes me a little nervous. But be it as it may, it's a good move. And I think uh, this organization, at least with the new guys in there, I think have done some research where there's a, a, a strong opinion where they're not just throwing darts up against the wall. I think the old regime, as much as they claim they were analytics or they were you know smart, I don't know if they were as progressive with the modern baseball era with all the tools available as possible and some of that and a lot of that probably has to do with maybe the resources they were given but that's a conversation for another day the 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 fact of the matter is is that the Mets are being criticized and Rosenthal basically said it in the piece at the athletic for doing the same thing that other teams are doing my problem with Machado and Harper is as follows I am not comfortable. I was extremely comfortable back in 2005 when Beltron was the centerpiece or the, the goal. Had no problem with that contract. When Piazza was given a seven-year deal, it made sense. Even though he's a catcher, and you could probably argue the back half of that deal. At that time, what he meant to the team, what he brought to the team, what he was as a player made sense. These two guys, to me, at this point, what they're looking for, and if I was going to give it to one and take a risk, it probably would be Machado over Harper because of the position he plays, even though I'm worried about those knees. I just don't see them as franchise players. Guys, put this in perspective with Machado. This guy could have been had on a silver platter by the Yankees a long time ago. Probably wants to wear Yankee pinstripes yesterday. And they could they don't really have a first baseman. They could move Miguel Andujar there. The Yankees haven't been. What is that telling you? Is it just about luxury tax? You're telling me they can't move some money, some payroll? They also understand they have some money they're going to have to pay out some of their young players eventually. Aaron Judge coming soon. They're looking at that. You're telling me the Yankees couldn't find a way to make it happen and still stay on the luxury tax? The guy wants to play there? The Dodgers are going to select and allow Justin Turner, and I know he has a contract. If this is a franchise player, Manny Machado, that we all were told that he is, that will make this big difference. You're going to let Justin Turner, if you're the Dodgers, get in the way. They saw him play for a while. They saw him play for 60 days in a postseason. Same amount of time as basically the Mets saw Cespedes. So you get a good feel, not a perfect feel, but a good feel about who you have in that clubhouse and who that is. Bryce Hopper, a guy that's had two elite MVP-type seasons that reminded you, and I don't think this is crazy, maybe pre-steroid Barry Bonds, Pujols, guys like that, but had a lot of seasons where he plays 110, 115, 120 games, which is what you would expect out of Wilson Ramos, and whether you like it or not, is it gave you, whether you like wins above replacement, gave you less than two wins in those some of those years in the last five, who goes through these extreme funks, has an injury history. Um, may not even be the greatest guy in the clubhouse. I don't know how much of an impact that is. Who plays a position right now where I think Michael Conforto has the potential to be just as good. 
And I wouldn't sleep on Brandon Nimmo as maybe not the same hype, but what he brings to the table. And he's really not a center fielder, in my opinion, Harper. And I think over the course of a 10-year contract, I don't think Nimmo, Conforto, or Harper would be a center fielder. I really don't. And I think if you're going to make a commitment to Harper, and that's the guy, you have to commit to moving Nimmo, moving Conforto, and totally using those assets, assets to reconfigure the entire roster. And personally... For 10 years, $300 million, which is the rumored offer that he turned down from the Nationals, knowing who the agent is, I just don't see how that makes sense. I don't think these guys, this is not Vlad Guerrero 2004, where you looked at the contract, you said the Mets should have been on, in on that. I don't see that happening with either one of these guys. I don't see these guys signing pillow contracts. If it comes down to where that's going, where they're going to sign a one-year deal to go back into the market, they're probably going to go back to their former teams. Maybe not Machado, but Harper. Maybe that's where you could criticize the Mets and say slide in. And I bet you, if that came down to it, they probably might pivot at the last minute, maybe, if that was available. I think that's what they would have done with Pollock. And that's the other thing. All of a sudden, and I liked A.J. Pollock, and I would have loved to see maybe them bring him in for center field, but they don't want to commit to a guy. And the guy doesn't want to commit to coming to a team where, yeah, Cespedes is still an option. We're not throwing Cespedes in the trash. Is it risky? Is Cespedes going to be potentially a guy that's gimpy or may not be the same player, that's out there. I get that. And I'm sure they have a little bit more information about what's going on with his rehab than you or I do. And I know that history says the Mets have taken these risks on players that, and Van Wagenen has said that, that probably are are not going to produce what you want because of injury, history, age, whatever. But they married this guy. Maybe not quite married for long term, but... They got more than a, a cup of coffee with him in terms of commitment. And they have to live with that over the next couple of years. And these two guys, passing on these guys, does not preclude them from maybe going out and looking at big free agents or signing their own free agents in the next couple of years. You know, Nolan Arenado might be available. And I think he would be, you know, I'd have to investigate further, just as good of an option as these guys. Do you, you know, and the Yankees might be in on that. Man, Yankees might be thinking the same thing. You don't know who becomes available in the marketplace. So unless you tell me that this and Machado makes more sense because you could put him at third base or shortstop. But at the same time, you're asking the Mets, even though he's only 26 years old, 10 years is a long time. 10 years is a darn long time. And the guys had significant knee injuries, and you don't know where your, your franchise is. It's hard to predict where the franchise will be in four years. I, and, and I know you have to go more than four or five years on big-time players. But I think the teams are starting to say, I'm not sure. Look, maybe the next collective bargain agreement, they do something like the NBA, where they kind of try to max out these deals to five to seven years, just to put a, uh, you know, some sanity on it. You know, the NBA got involved with these crazy long-term contracts, and they didn't want to do them anymore. Because you're handcuffed forever. And that's a different sport and the salary cap and what have you. But to to, to sit here and, and complain and make the offseason, which I think the Mets have done a good job bringing in some different type of players, bringing in some depth, taking some calculated risks on, on other organizations' players. Uh, you know, Jed Lowry's a grinder. Really bringing in professional guys that I think are going to come and put in a focused, honest effort every day. And I think they're solid players. They're not scrubs. I think that he should be applauded for that. Is there risk in all his moves? Absolutely. Familia, Cano, Edwin Diaz are all risks. You may regret Kelnick in five years. 
And maybe this all blows up and becomes Mo Vaughn and Robbie Alomar. I don't know. And sure, history says the Mets' luck hasn't really been on their side. But you can't base your decision-making right now on 2002 or woe is me or whatever the history of the Mets have been. And I'm sorry, in today's day and age, and you're going to see it with the Knicks, because as much as I applaud what the Knicks are doing, the Knicks are unwatchable. The Knicks are irrelevant. The Knicks are, are probably behind people's entertainment options, behind watching reruns of your favorite uh, uh, HBO or uh, A&E or Netflix uh, series right now in terms of watching. And maybe that'll change next year, or maybe that'll change when Porzingis comes back, or maybe that'll change when they get the number one pick, and who knows if that number one pick pans out. But they're irrelevant in this town. And when you do the plans, and the only time you want to go to those plans is when it absolutely screams you have to. And for the Knicks, it did. Those break it down, be bad for five years plans when you absolutely have to. There's no reason you should do that. You can still rebuild and entertain and compete in a league with two freaking wild cards. Where things change all the time. Oh, the Phillies passed them up. They, they should just rebuild. Yeah, the Phillies really passed them up. Oh, the Bra- oh, that's it. The Braves have passed them. They can't win. Did anybody say that about the Mets in 2015? No. They went out and tried to compete and win, and, and the Mets didn't sustain what they had. You don't know. So the offseason shouldn't be made about Harper and Machado. I'm not saying either one of those guys would be a bad move in terms of bringing them into the team in a vacuum. They're fine. They're going to make the team better. I think a Harper's a clumsy fit. I compared it to when the Mets went and got Carmelo Anthony and Amari Stoudemire. I think Machado's a better fit. But again, the Mets are looking at this and saying, if I'm going to do a long-term serious commitment and take the risk that's with it after I've gotten burnt by Wright, certain degree got burnt by Cespedes, paid out uh, one year basically, a year and a half. Now, Pedro was a whole different. I think it was a mindset. You paid for a change in mindset of that team. They got a good value out of the Beltron contract, but there was dead money on that too. And they look at every Santana. We know what happened there. They look at all those contracts and they say, geez, is this the guy that I could take the risk on? The answer right now is no, and I don't blame them. And I'm telling you, you want to talk about collusion? You want to talk about all the bean counters in uh, baseball front offices, the analytics guys, Wall Street, whatever you want to talk about when it comes to the game right now. There's a problem in the sense where teams are hesitant about these two guys. This is not about collusion about these two guys. Is it a Boris thing with Harper? Maybe. Is it a Lozano thing about Machado? Maybe. Maybe those agents are not liked, or maybe the way they're negotiating is, is turning people off. These guys have a number, and maybe they, and let me tell you, the Players Association is probably also telling these guys, you need to stick, stay strong and stick to a number, because if you cave, it's going to set a ripple effect. I get that. But I also don't think these are guys that I'd give 10-year contracts. How do you think Anaheim and Albert Pujols make sense? Remember the Marlins was in on that Pujols thing? Imagine how that contract would look for them. How does Stanton looking right now with the Yankees? You're all complaining about it. A year ago, you all wanted Stanton. You want to be stuck to that forever? So you got to be smart. Yes, there are great players, and there are players you splurge on. And there's guys like Beltron, which makes sense, and you got to take the risk. At the end of the contract, it's worth it. I'm sorry, Beltron was worth it. You got your money's worth out of Beltron despite the injuries. I don't know if these two guys are, and if I had to pick one, it ain't Bryce Harper. Most overrated player. Do you realize people are talking about putting him up in commercials with LeBron James? That is an insult to LeBron James. LeBron James, the guy's won nothing. I don't even know if he's the best outfielder in the National League East, much less being next to LeBron James. Come on. Grow up. Please. And I always say this. 
You listen to the media. You let them do winning the offseason moves so they can write columns because they're bored right now. Or to placate the fans because the fans are bored right now. Because the Knicks stink. Nobody cares about the Nets. The Jets and Giants are long gone. And nobody wants to see the Patriots win the Super Bowl. And nobody cares about hockey in this town right now. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's probably a lot of hockey fans in the audience. But they really don't. So they're starving for a story. The Yankees aren't giving it to them. Let's go and and tell the Mets to do something crazy here. Which they'll just be criticized for in six to eight months when it turns out that they basically blew their payroll and any kind of ability to build a 25- to 40-man roster effectively so they could sit and have this drawing card. Do you really think Bryce Harper is going to increase eyeballs to the cable uh, television? Winning does that. Nobody wants to see Bryce Harper ground out to second base in the shift. They want to see Bryce Harper on a winning team in New York that wins. People love Mike Piazza, but they like Mike Piazza in 99-2000 when the team was winning. They didn't turn on SNY or at that time Fox Sports Network in 2003 when they were losing 100 games. See Mike Piazza. He got injured that year. Or 2004 when they stunk late in the year. They didn't care. No one's doing that. That's a narrative. That's a media narrative. All right. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, Bob Sykes, we're going to remember Mel Stoudemire and Mel's career with uh, the Mets in New York. Go do a little trip down memory lane. I'll wrap up the show later, talking a little Hall of Fame, have some thoughts. going to throw a little bit of a different take of where I'm at with the Hall of Fame and maybe the, what I'm struggling with. and has nothing to do with steroids. So, uh, More to come. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Stoudemire, though only an out away from victory, is in no hurry. He finally pitches. James strikes out, and the Yankees win 8-3, evening the series at a victory apiece. The Yankees congratulate Stoudemire, a World Series winner after only two months in the majors. When they were faltering in the pennant race, the rookie gave them the lift they needed. And now, he has done it for them again. We're back and taking a little break on this show. We talked about the offseason earlier, but uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, spend a little bit of time. Former Mets pitching coach, former Yankees pitching coach, uh, former Yankee Mel Stottlemyre passed away uh, about a few days ago and um, maybe about a week ago. And uh, I, I thought it'd be nice to just look back. And, and I was thinking, you know, you know, obviously you could go back and try to get one of the former pitchers and what have you. But I wanted to try something different. An old friend of the show came to mind, Bob Sykes. Bob was the assistant athletic trainer under Steve Garland during the 80s, was there for a large portion of Mel's tenure. And what better way, Bob used to have a blog called Getting Paid to Watch. He got paid to watch Mel handle a very young pitching staff, talented pitching staff. And why not get the guy who had the best seat in the house on? Bob, uh, pleasure to have you on. It's been a long time. I know we've done shows in the past uh, how are you i know you're down south and i uh, hope you're doing well over there mike thank you for having me again i'm doing well so sad news you know actually the mets community of lost i know uh, gary carter passed away a few years ago and then rusty and and now mel and, and obviously you know i'm in my 40s now you start to feel old when the t- players on the teams of your childhood yeah. are getting older and you're talking about uh you know unfortunately they're passing so Makes you feel a little old, but uh, also brings back some fond memories. And, um, you know, when you thought of Mel Stoudemire, I don't know if you thought of him as the Yankees player. Obviously, you worked with him as a coach. 
you know, what comes to mind with your time with Mel when you were at the Mets? I, a couple of things come to mind. I, I, I know that when, when Mel came to the Mets, he came in 1984. He'd been with the Mariners, I think, uh, working in the minor leagues. I'm really not quite sure how he got to Davey Johnson's staff. I, I, I would imagine that's covered in the book that Mel did with John Harper. Um, but what I noticed when Mel came to New York, Mel ha- had a stature in New York because he was a – a former New York athlete, you know, and a, and a significant one, the one that had won World Series games, and and he was a, a household name. And so he had a, a better-than-star-power stature as a coach in New York. But Mel wasn't that way. He was a very unassuming man and very easy to talk to. He had uh, – relationships with with everybody everybody knew mel and mel knew everybody around around the ballpark and so he was a he was a special guy i think all the accolades you get about him as a as being a better person than he was a baseball guy are are fair as the pitching coach of the mets everybody could talk about the talent on that team and his two tenures were both new york clubs the yankees later on with more veteran squad even though he had gooden who was outstanding uh cone later on darling fernandez aguilera who's probably very underrated and then you had a veteran like ojita in the mix there as well with even with that talent you know those guys were good but they didn't come in my opinion as finished commodities they were they're almost finished they needed a little bit and and doc gooden has described them as almost like a a father to him especially because doc was so young talk about from your your perspective how important Mel was to procuring that staff and getting that young staff to be the elite group that they were, you know, not only when they won the title, but throughout the whole decade of the eighties. Yeah, sure. I, I remember reading an interview or it might've been Ronnie Darling on TV. And, and, and he said something that I, that I really agree with that. I, I think I'd like to emphasize here is that Mel had a, had a skill to be able to develop relationships with everybody. And, you know, when you're talking about that, that dominant staff from, from the 85, 86, 87, 88 years, you had five different personalities, all highly driven athletes, but all different, you know, all from different parts of the country, from different backgrounds. And Mel was able to establish a rapport with all of them and an extremely productive and nurturing relationship. I knew that there was a, an incredible amount of trust between those guys and Mel because they knew he was genuine. They knew Mel was genuine. They, they knew that Mel uh, said what he meant, meant what he said. And, uh, and he did so in a, in, in a very delicate, classy way. Mel did everything at the same speed. Uh, he was never anxious about anything, uh, very thoughtful about every decision that he made. And so he was one of the more effective coaches I've ever been I've ever been around in all my years after I after I left the Mets and even before the Mets I've been involved in athletics all these years with a lot of terrific coaches at the high school and collegiate level some of them very very talented but Mel is is certainly one of the better ones that I've ever worked with and he went and and you look today in the day of analytics and pitchers and what have you and when you read some of the things that he was known for like you said communication and relationships and things like that and it sounds like a new pitching but 
most importantly, I guess from an outsider, he knew his staff. He knew what each of them needed. And he knew how talented they were, and he was able to influence them each individually different. It sounds simple yes. from an outsider's point of view, but probably you saw it up close, especially with those personalities, much more complex, especially because he was dealing with Gooden, who's so young, yes. and Darling, who had yes. so many, you know, Darling Fernandez, they, they did not come to the major leagues finished products, and they really didn't no. have a veteran anchor, even though Okita, he was re- rather young, like, Staffs now, they bring in a, a star to kind of anchor them. That team didn't have that. Mm-hmm. They all had to grow up together, and I think that, that says a lot about you know, how good he did with that group, how, how effective he was. I, I, I think so, but let me, let, me, let me say this about Gooden, though. The, the year that Gooden had in, in 1985 is, is still considered to be one of the greatest in the modern era. And, and I, I think that those guys still considered Doc to be the number one starter. I think it was very easy to to see Doc as as that guy. But the rest of the staff was 2A, 2B, 2C, 2D. You know, there were, we, we were Doc Gooden, and then the rest of the staff were number two guys. And I think that's what made them so good. Gooden was, was a little more mature beyond his years than you would think. Gooden didn't act like an 18-year-old kid. Um, an interesting thing about Gooden, though, if you remember that 1985 year, he threw 300 innings, a lot of pitches. He had 300 strikeouts. And I knew that Mel was very, very concerned about the wear and tear on Gooden's shoulder. And Gooden, I, he won 20 games, I believe, one more time. But he never had anything near that dominant year. He he had a bad shoulder. A lot of people will talk about the other things, the substance abuse problems that Doc had. But he hurt his shoulder. He hurt his shoulder. And uh, he had a very loose shoulder. Uh, there was a time when when uh, when I, uh, MRIs were new, and we weren't sure what we were looking at. And they saw a little tear, what is now considered to be a tear, in his shoulder. And, and, and then Dr. Jim Parks refused to do anything with it. And Mel was a great buffer with all of that, having to deal with, you know, Davey was high strung and Mel was not, you know, and so Mel had a good, had, was probably one of the few, play, few, the only coach that could probably just be around Davey and calm Davey down. And, and he kept Doc on an even keel. And I remember one of my favorite, I teased Mel one time. Oh, so oh, Doc Spitzner, that's an easy day. He said, no, he said, this is my hardest day. He said, which is, okay, which is your easiest day? He said, easiest day is when Sid Fernandez catches because Gary just, he said, Gary, Gary Carter is so good with Sid that it, it's, it's like he's in a rocket chair back there. And Gary would say the same thing about Sid Fernandez. He said it's the easiest guy he ever caught easily. Very you know? underrated pitcher. You know, you look back, Sid didn't oh, win a lot. Yeah. Oh, but oh, yeah. the, the metrics, I think today would advance metrics, I think, and I've said this, Sid might have been the second best pitcher on that staff. And when you talk about Gooden yeah. who had issues with substance abuse, and I think reading yes. back some old articles, the, the tear you described might've been a capsule tear, which is a very serious injury. Yes, it was. Uh, yes, it was a capsular tear. That's what we, that's what it was. It was a capsule. I didn't want to get into, into more detail. It is, but it was a capsular tear. He had a, he had a very lax shoulder, uh, but a lot of guys did. And so again, we were, we were reading these things, uh, for the first time. And so we really weren't sure what we were looking at. 
And he ended up pitching through it. If we actually, what, what we did is we ended up watching the tear shrink. I can't remember how many, how many we did, but we had Doc on the DL. I don't remember what year it was. It was either 87 or maybe 89. I don't know. But we did, we kept doing these MRIs. And so basically what we did is every time we took, we took an MRI, the tear kept shrinking until it was gone, you know, so which was a very interest, interesting thing to do. And I, th- I think that was a, a, a teachable moment in sports science for all of us. But, but again, yeah. Mel was always the guy that, that was the calming influence, was a center of, of information, and, and it, it keep, he would keep good and calm. And, and, good and, and every pitcher had tremendous confidence in Mel had tremendous confidence in him and, and he was he was really special in in dealing with guys and and, and, and guys loved working with Mel. I think they would all tell you that. You know, his 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 professional career as a player, he won twenty games, he lost twenty games. You know, he had a decent record. Yeah. Uh but when you yeah. look, you know, Jack Morrison Hall of Fame, um understanding that now we're all about advanced metrics analytics. See I I look at this. The NBA does a good job of looking at players, their totality of their career. What did they do? If they did stuff overseas, that counts and what have you. When you look at what Mel did with Mm -hmm. the Mets, and then he went to the Yankees, and I understand the Yankees were a veteran team, but, you know, you still have to keep these pitchers focused. And I think the pitching coach, and I'd be curious your thoughts, is far more important than the hitting coach because I think the pitching coach has heavier lifting to do. It's so much more of an exact, precise, tricky – a task, tricky skill out there. Um, I think yeah. that you put his pitching coaching career in the mix with a pretty decent career with the Yankees. I mean, I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer, but I've seen worse cases. Let's put it that way. I'm have have we ever? Have we ever had? Yeah. Have we ever had a, 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 a somebody get in as a as a coach? Uh, Managers, I guess. Yeah, the broadcasters, broadcasters and managers. We have we have front but, office people. We probably have scouts. I I think that. Yep. Uh, yep. I, I, you know, I certainly had, 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 I think Mel has a monument now out in, in, in at the Yankee Stadium. I think doesn't he? Yep, um I believe so. You know that that might be where where that might be. I, I don't know. It's, yeah, I would love to see if it, if anybody's deserving, it's Mel. It certainly is. You know, can, can I share a story about Mel? I, sure. I think everybody would like. Uh, it was toward the end. I, my, my last year was 90, 1991, and, and we were in uh, it, we were in St. Louis, and it was a day game in St. Louis, and it was hot. And you know they had they had uh, artificial turf there, so it was really hot. And the the late Harry won the set, who was a wonderful umpire, really was. I think is is his son still in? I think Hunter Wendell's at. Yeah. And, but Harry was Harry was having a day, and it was hot, and it was one of those games, and and he got into it with Kevin Elster at home plate, and he ended up throwing Elster out, and and we knew what it was all about, and 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 Mel and Mel said Mel told him he said Harry that was and 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 Harry is really a good guy. He said, "Well, you're the king of bleep these bleak," and so Mel had a uh, had a, had a diet coke in his hand. And he just there was about four steps, so he just walked up calmly to the four steps, and uh, and had a conversation with Harry, and nobody knew it, but he had to walk up, he had to walk up to the clubhouse because Harry had thrown him out without you know not, you know doing the crank on him. So it, <laughs> it was just crazy. It really was funny. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Before I but let you go, I, 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 I 
he was with the Yankees. Well, I'm sure he got tossed a couple of times. I don't know, but that was the only time Mel got thrown out while he was with the Mets while I was there, and it wasn't. And Mel did not get his money's worth. <laughs> but he. Was I'm gonna tell you. Tough. I'm gonna tell you a couple Over. things, but but before I let you go, uh, one thing is yeah. Howie Rose recently was on the air, and I don't know how it came up, but uh, you know if you remember how he used to do the, the when the Mets went to the fan the pre and sure. post game show. Yeah. And, and and radio yeah, guys yeah. Were, uh, were were breaking stuff. Not like today, where it's more opinion. And and uh, and, and he slipped. I don't know if he realized that. I guess it doesn't matter now. And he admitted that Steve Garland was one of his sources. So I'm wondering, was Steve Garland and Bob Sykes the unnamed source out of the Mets clubhouse during the '80s? Because how he slipped recently and, and admitted that Garland was one of his sources about what was been, going it, on. It was never Bob Sykes. It was never Bob Sykes. I can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, but there are some unnamed sources who are now uh, prominent uh, on TV uh, that were <laughs> I know that. Uh, unnamed sources. All that time. They're very prominent on TV now in the New York area. So they, they were... Two, they, two very, they were yeah, I think, I think it's not just one. I know... I, I think it's yeah, both I, of I, them. <laughs> yeah, well, they, yeah, one of the, they, were, they were very good at being uh, unnamed sources. Yeah, so. that's, that's, I, I know, we know, we know... You you can leave them anonymous, but I think the the listeners will figure yes, out. Yes, we will. Hey, we will leave. We will leave them anonymous. Yes, we will. You know, listening to you talk about Doc and how you handle the injuries and and all the information now with TrackMan and I don't know how much you keep up with the technology in baseball now. Uh, not only from a standpoint of pitching and performance, but medicine. Could you imagine if you guys, you and Steve Garland and the crew, you know, Mel and Davey, had that information? Does it ever make you wonder how you would have handled that, that those players yeah. that staff differently at all? You know, it's, especially the thing that comes to mind with me is pitch counts. You know, um, you know, rarely do Davey you got see very guys mad go at over. me. I brought up pitch counts to Davey oh, yeah. many oh. years ago, and he and he got mad yeah. and he said, "You know, Doc had pitch count yeah. under thirty. and he got very mad yeah. when I when I asked Davey, "Do you think you abused Doc?" He got very angry at me when I brought that up. Oh to him yeah, at he's, the very, he's very sensitive about that. He, he he remains very sensitive about that, you know. Uh, but you know, everybody pitched. He look who he look look. look I can't blame David. Look look who he played behind. He played behind all those guys with Baltimore. Uh, those then they have one year where they had four guys won twenty games. You know, even so Cone. I mean, was, Bob, if you remember, even Cone threw a lot of pitches, hundred forty, hundred fifty in a game, and nobody thought twice about it at all. Let me tell you, you something. Know, there, there was a game we were playing the Los Angeles Dodgers. We were in Shea Stadium. We were winning, and Fernando Valenzuela was pitching. And he had close to 160 pitches in the game. It was like a 6-3 game or something like that when we were winning, but he was he was still in the game. And yeah. it's, it was just a different time. I mean, athletes were different. They, they, they didn't go to the weight. We didn't have pitchers in the weight room like we do now. They, they did mostly running and stretching, running and stretching, and, and long toss. That's what they did, and so uh, it's it's a different. They train differently now, and 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 that uh, hundred pitch count is is what it is, you know. And maybe maybe the years will end up being longer, but you know, look at the careers those guys had. Uh, nobody had a shortened career, you know. They had uh, no, none of those guys had had careers shortened because they pitched too much, you know. No. And no. So I, that, that's, that's my little thing there. I I I just like guys going longer, and, and you know the new. You know the 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 new status. Say, well, they don't. We don't want. Remember the thing about Harvey. You didn't want Harvey to go three times through or something like that. And yep. And you know, there's that. And, and you 
know, there's all that other stuff now. And I, I, I love to listen to Bob, to listen to Bobby Ojeda about all the stuff now because it drives him nuts, you know. Oh <laughs> yeah, Bobby. <laughs> Bobby Ojeda's Bobby Ojeda's uh, podcast for sure. Well, Bob, listen, I always like catching up with you. I appreciate a few minutes of your time. I'm definitely gonna, you know, give you a ring, and we'd love to go down memory lane again. And uh, be well, and uh, let's do this again, Please. okay, my friend. Thank you, Mike. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. That's Bob Sykes, uh, former assistant athletic trainer for the Mets back uh, 84 to 91. And, uh, you know, chance to remember Mel Stottlemyre a little bit, you know, his influence on that pitching staff. And, uh, you know, get a couple of interesting stories here on, uh, you know, what was a very cold winter week earlier this week, warming up a little bit, but uh, spring training not too far away. And, and I thought it was an interesting little uh, segue there. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When I return, we're going to talk some Hall of Fame. I guess it's a good segue, you know, Mel Stottlemyre and debating that. Maybe we'll throw that into the mix a little bit with his career and uh, wrap up with some Hall of Fame talk. You're listening to the Talking Mets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. We'll be back with more right after this. Rivera brings the hands together. Runners take a lead at all three bases. One, two to Franco. Line drive, base hit in the right field. Henderson scores. Here comes Alfonso. Here comes O'Neal. score to the plate. Alfonso slides. He's safe. The Mets win it. The Mets win it. Matt Franco with a line drive, single to right, and he's being mobbed by his teammates. Matt Franco, a two-run single off Mariano Rivera in the bottom of the ninth inning, and the Mets win it 9-8. to eight. What better way to return from the to, to honor, and we're going to talk about the Hall of Fame now, to honor uh, the first unanimous player to be elected into the Hall of Fame, Marion Rivera, with a great Mets moment involving Rivera on the wrong side. So I thought you guys enjoyed that. As far as Mel Stottlemyre, a great segment. I enjoyed talking to Bob. Just an easy, breezy baseball dialogue, remembering some stories. Nothing intense. Nothing hard-hitting. I just thought it would be easy to kind of break up, uh, you know, what, what we're doing here today. And like I told you earlier, I'm trying to jam-pack. Really what it would be, I probably would do a Hall of Fame podcast separate, but a couple podcasts into an hour. And, again, hopefully my voice holds up. I'm, I'm feeling better, but, you know, still a little bit of uh, under-the-weather type of situation here. But uh, Mel Stottlemyre, looking at it, he probably played in the wrong era. Uh, and I'll get to that in a minute here. Won 20 games three times and and played for the Yankees when really they were going from being a perennial champion to those you know 1960s what they always call into the early 70s the Horace Clark dark days and what have you and even with that he won 164 games if he played on some of those 1940s or 1950s uh, Yankees teams and he and he, and he probably would have won maybe a few more games. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have those 20 lost seasons or those 15 and 15 seasons that we're in through some of those 21 seasons. Uh, maybe those 21 or 20 game win seasons might be even better with a, with a really good Yankees team. Uh, he probably is a Hall of Famer. I mean, he's got 164 wins, a 2.970 ERA, a 112 ERA plus. And this is where I'm going to get, you know, when you factor in Stottlemyre's coaching career, you have a pretty interesting resume there. And it really will go into my point here and where I'm going to go with the Hall of Fame discussion because I'm not going to sit here in the past. I've gone through the ballot and told you who I think is a Hall of Famer and all that stuff. But 
What I'm going to talk about is where the dilemma lies right now with voting for the Hall of Fame and where I think the confusion is being created. It has nothing to do with steroids. In today's day and age, you have so much information in front of you for anything. And this is probably the larger issue in society. I could go now. I could look at players like Mel Stottlemyre. I could go back and look at all the Hall of Famers and I'm bringing them up for a reason like Ozzie Smith and Luis Aparicio and look at numbers on baseball reference and they could dive into wins above replacement and we could go to the play index on baseball reference and I could do comparisons, which I'm going to do. And everything here will, will be measured out. And you almost say to yourself, the snapshot in time that we are today makes the Hall of Fame process, the voting process, the decision-making process so much different than a voter or a Veterans Committee member back in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s who you have to count for something that they saw the player, but the information and the comparison abilities were so much more anecdotal. See, for me, the way I would vote for a Hall of Famer if I had a vote, if I had a BBWAA vote, is I look first for a guy who has total numbers. There's certain benchmarks. I know those, those benchmarks are not as important like the 3,000 hits or the 500 home runs, even though I think that you still get in with those. But because, especially with the home runs or the saves, they become commoditized, they're not as valuable, mainly because of what people figure, the smaller ballparks, the expansion, the PEDs, all that stuff. Uh, but I look for the total numbers. Then I look for a, a period of 8 to 10 years of consistent excellence, staying healthy, producing numbers, preferably on both sides of the ball. But obviously offense is going to probably take the cake more than an overall defensive player. Uh, and then historic moments. Yes, Roger Maris has an historic season. It was the all-time single-season home run leader for a bit. That doesn't mean he's a Hall of Famer when you do the totality of his career. The event is in the Hall of Fame. Same thing with Sosa and Maguire. Uh, although those are different cases because their total numbers are really good, you can make arguments for the kind of player that Sosa specifically was, or even Maguire, that although, forget the PEDs for a minute, they were not complete players, and those events were historic, but the totality of the player doesn't measure up when you start to look at things like defense and wins above replacement and, and all these other things that come into play. It becomes harder because as we compare, and I think the biggest part, and this was the last thing, was precedence. I always felt precedence was something that was important. And that's why I would get mad when the Veterans Committee or you know, the BBWA would vote in somebody. And I even had this argument, maybe even with a Barry Larkin and guys like that. I'm like, did those guys really belong in the Hall of Fame? Because once you add them, that caliber of player, especially even with pitchers, you almost have to relook at every similar type of pitcher. And everybody who's in the Hall class this year uh, that was voted in, Rivera revolutionized the closer position. Not only was he elite, forget about you know anyone who says the saves and the cheapness of the save, forget that. I don't even care about the 652 saves or the ERA plus of 205. It's the fact that he was automatic. He was automatic in the playoffs in a big spot. And he changed the game. He turned a nine-inning game to an eight-inning game. And when the Yankees had elite arms leading up to him, even in seasons where maybe the pitchers weren't going as long as they would like, you basically had a five- or six-inning game. And it was really tough to beat them. 
any close game, any one or two run game, forget about anything more. You were done. You weren't coming back against Rivera. He had a couple of hiccups, one against the Indians, one against the Red Sox. But other than that, he was dominant. So there's no question there. Edgar Martinez, I've been touting him for years. Here's a guy that averaged over 300, over 400, uh, over 300 batting average, over 400 on base, and over 500 slugging for his career. I don't, I don't pin the whole DH thing and, and get upset because he didn't play the field. If you look just at players that had those kind of seasons individually, 300 batting average, 400 on base, 500 slugging, and they qualified in those seasons for the for the you know the batting average title. They had enough at bats to qualify. Edgar Martinez has eight of those seasons. Uh, that's as many as Mickey Mantle. Uh, guys like uh, Miguel Cabrera, who many think are, are going to be Hall of Famers. Uh, Hank Greenberg. Uh, Frank Robinson, great players. I mean, right above him is Rogers Hornsby and Jimmy Fox. And, I mean, Barry Bonds has 11 of those seasons. When you do a 300 batting average, a 400 on base, and a 500 slugging, that's an elite, elite season. All-time Babe Ruth had 15 of them. Edgar Martinez had half that. Uh, Frank Thomas, who's in the Hall of Fame, had eight of those. So I don't want to hear that he's uh, you know, not a Hall of Famer. Mussina and Holiday, that's where it goes to my point of precedence and where it's going. I mean, certainly Holiday had maybe not a 10-year run, but a pretty solid seven- or eight-year run. Uh, the overall numbers when you consider the innings and, and the, and the uh, 200 wins and the ability to uh, go deep into games and win – with the era of relief pitching and offense, you have to give him credit. I mean, won 20 games uh, three times. Again, we just talked about Mel Stottlemyre with 164 wins and an ERA plus of 112. You know, Holiday is not uh, that kind of player. Uh, he's got over 200 wins. He's got 100, 131 ERA plus. Uh, but again, you start to look at similarity scores, and you go, and this is where the comparison is, uh, and you look at some of the similar type of, of pitchers that – Roy Halladay comes up against, and it's Roy Oswalt, Brett Saberhagen, Tim Hudson, Ron Guidry, Jimmy Key, John Lester, Doc Gooden, Justin Verlander. I don't know if any of those guys are Hall of Famers. So when you start to look at similar stats, they're not Hall of Famers. Now, Mike Mussina, 270 wins, he's much more consistent. Here's a guy that was consistently winning 15-plus games. Uh, throughout uh, about a 10-year span. I mean, he had he was really a consistent player. You got He's a guy you could count on for 15 wins. Maybe he wasn't dominant at times, but he had some really good seasons. Uh, he never won uh, a, a Cy Young, uh, but he, was, he finished in the top five a few times. You look at his numbers, and then you say, okay, uh, maybe, you know, when the numbers are, they're solid. Well, who are similar uh, players to him? CeCe Sabathia. Uh, Jim Palmer, okay, there's Jim Palmer. That's a Hall of Famer. Uh, so, okay, there's a Hall of Famer comparable. Uh, but sometimes you think about it, when you will want Andy Pettit is on there, we'll get to Pettit, who only got 10% of the vote. Juan Marichal. All right, so I, I think Kevin Brown is on there. I think Halliday, uh, excuse me, uh, Mussina is more of a case. But here's where I get confused. Forget the fact that I think Clemens and Bonds are all famers. I'm not going to get into the little PED thing. You start to look at Larry Walker and Kurt Schilling. And, well, you know, if Mussina is a Hall of Famer, Kurt Schilling's numbers are not in wins perspective, but peripheral numbers are pretty similar. But what's, what's his comparables? Kevin Brown, Bob Welch, Tim Hudson. 
Now you, Roy Holiday came up very similar to some of these guys, Justin Verlander. It gets really dicey because once you allow one in, and if you're going to have a much more thorough group of individuals assessing Hall of Famers, now you've got to look at comparables. There's a lot more players that are coming in. A lot of individuals think Larry Walker got 55% of the vote, and I never thought of Larry Walker. And I, I'm one of those guys that dings him for Colorado. Uh, you know, who is he precedent-wise? Who does he uh, stack out against? All right, well, that's different. You have guys like DiMaggio on there and Vlad Guerrero and Duke Snyder and, and Moise Salou, who probably would get more consideration if he had stayed healthy. Um so he's got some precedent with Hall of Fame, uh, Hall of Fame comparable numbers. Uh, here's a guy that also had 300 batting average, 400 on base, and uh, over 500 for his career, 500 slugging. If you go and look though, and you look at what he did uh, as a member of the uh, the Cardinals and and the uh, the Expos, it's still very good. But the on base and the batting average drop, uh, and the slugging, even in the case of Montreal when he was a younger player. Is a little bit lower. He's a very good player in Montreal. He's a very good player in St. Louis. He was elite Hall of Fame in Colorado. And I think that there was a little bit of an enhancement playing in Colorado. So I know the argument there. Oh, well, if you're going to ding him for Colorado, then you can't have Colorado as a big league club. I think Manny Ramirez is a Hall of Famer. He's only getting 23% of the vote. I think Jeff Kent deserves consideration. But here's the problem. Where does the comparable portion of the Hall of Fame come into play? Where does precedence come into play? Omar Vizquel got 43% of the vote. If Omar Vizquel is not a Hall of Famer, then what does that say for comparables to Omar Vizquel? Because Luis Aparicio, who I never saw play, but was a good glove, Pee Wee Reese, Ozzie Smith, who I did see play, Ozzie Smith is a, essentially a clone to Omar Vizquel. Now, he didn't have a nickname like The Wizard, he didn't play for the Cardinals during an era where the Cardinals were getting a lot of exposure. He didn't do backflips over at shortstop. What's the difference? So you start to look at this, the current active players on the uh, that are left on the ballot, and you could conceivably say Schilling's a Hall of Famer, Clemens and Bonds, Larry Walker, Omar Vizquel, Fred McGriff just fell off the ballot because he only got 40% of the vote. Fred McGriff had a, had a really solid career. Probably the numbers are dwarfed because of the era he played in. And and then you say, well, you know, who is he comparable to? Frank Thomas, David Ortiz, Jeff Bagwell, Willie McCovey. Well, I, you know, Fred McGriff's a Hall of Famer. Manny Ramirez, forget the Peds again. Uh, top five offensive player during his career. If you just do the 15 years, that's uh, wins above replacement puts him in. Manny Ramirez, over 500 home runs, probably the best right-handed hitter over a 15-year period. No doubt. And then with the closers, I hear about Billy Wagner. And to me, Billy Wagner, not a Hall of Famer, did not pitch well in the postseason. Uh, very good closer. But if you're going to be hard on first baseman and you're going to make it hard for shortstops to get in the Hall of Fame, and outfielders it seems like it's a little bit easier than it is uh, other positions. It's not a heck of a lot of third baseman in the Hall of Fame. You have to – those are more valuable positions on the field than closer. Even though closer is important, that's a fungible position, uh, and it's, it's a volatile position. You probably have to say the closers like Eckersley and Rivera, those elite, those difference makers, those guys that were you know, above and beyond, they belong in the hall. The, the problem has been, and this goes back to the hall of very good debate, 
that we almost have to go back. Now that we have all this information, review this whole Hall of Fame thing. If you really want to do it right, and there are some people who probably don't belong in there. Because if you take my criteria, a decade of excellence, an historic event, total numbers, and you forget, pre and you want to even put precedence in there, but precedence doesn't matter if you blow the whole thing up and start over, because then the precedent is your new bar. There's a lot that don't belong in there. You could question an Ozzy Smith. Because if Ozzy Smith leads to, or Luis, Luis Aparicio, or Pee Wee, Wee Reese leads to Omar Vizquel, I don't know if Omar Vizquel, great defensive player, a key component player to those Cleveland teams, played till over the age of 40. I don't know. Lee Smith getting in probably opens the door where you could have conversations about Billy Wagner or John Franco. And I can tell you, I love John Franco, longtime Met. He's not a Hall of Famer. And no Mets fan, while he was playing, felt that that was an automatic guy on a mound. Well, that was a Hall of Fame closer. He was on the field. He was consistent. And and he, he accumulated saves. And he, and he got more saves than he blew. But in a big spot, he wasn't a guarantee. And to me, a Hall of Famer has to be a little bit more than that. And, and I think that's the dilemma you have with the Hall of Fame. And I think that's the real challenge for the voters going forward is the peripheral numbers, the over... Uh, the the over the amount of data in front of you, the pressure from the analytics crowd, the pressure from the analytics crowd and from the uh, fans in some cases is similar to the political pressure at times where you, you can't say and do things or you vote people in because you don't want to be tarred and feathered. So although I don't subscribe to the crowd that says, whoa, the writer, look at us, this is not fun because this is just this is the candy store, this is fun. I do think it's becoming more challenging, and I didn't feel it was as challenging five, six, seven, or eight years ago. But as more players get in that I think are borderline and reopen the case or reexamine the case of other players that have been put in, uh, you've got a situation where the Hall of Fame may be more the Hall of Very Good and Above. And look, the NBA does, I think, an excellent job where it honors the game more so than just the individual, where if you've done well in Europe or the WNBA. It's more about excellence or honoring the game. I mean, there's certainly elite players, but it's not as debated as the Baseball Hall of Fame. And then when you really talk about elite players, you can talk about the greatest of all time, like people say. That's more radio talk conversation because there are players in the Hall of Fame in the NBA that are not even close to the conversation of greatest all time. Really good players, players who contributed to championship teams, but another level. In baseball, that would, you know, some of those would be the Omar Vizquel's, I think, of the NBA. Nobody says bleep about it. So, at the end of, at the, end of the, uh, the situation here, I guess what I'm saying about the Hall of Fame is precedence and data have made this impossible. And you almost have to rethink things. And right now, what I'm telling you is uh, I'm seeing a ton of guys now that based on my evaluation process belong in the Hall of Fame. And I don't know if that's a good thing because I don't know if Larry Walker's a Hall of Famer. And I don't know if if uh, Omar Vizquel's a Hall of Famer. I don't know. I really don't. I don't feel like they are, but the numbers are telling me. Same thing with Kurt Schilling. Right, Halliday getting in opens up a lot. Uh, but then I look at a Catfish Hunter, and I'm saying, well, if Catfish Hunter's in, he had some good seasons, but 
overall his numbers weren't uh, anything less than some of the guys I just mentioned. So a really tough, confusing thing. In the, in the end, I have no issues with who was voted in. Uh, I still think Clemens and Bonds deserve to be in. I don't know if they will. They seem to not have stagnated around the 60%. But let's see what next year brings. Next year will be the year of Jeter. So we'll have to find a Jeter-Mets moment. Uh, there's probably no negative Jeter-Mets moments like the Rivera moment we just played. But be it as it may. Hey, everybody. Uh, appreciate the time today. I uh, want to thank everyone for tuning in. Our next show will be after the Super Bowl. So check us out. Of a podcast the week after the Super Bowl. I'm aiming for Tuesday after the Super Bowl. Uh, I think we have something really interesting coming out after the Super Bowl. So stay tuned for that. Of course, I want to thank Bob Sykes for joining us today. I want to thank all the good folks at MetsamorizedOnline.com. You can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast after the Super Bowl. Be well, everybody. for the party.